podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. It's time to get your checking account to zero with free checking from PenFed. That's zero ATM fees, zero balance requirements, and zero time spent waiting for your paycheck to direct deposit because you can receive it up to two days early. Open your account with just $25 and see how big zero can be. Apply online today at penfed.org slash free checking. Early direct deposit eligibility may vary between pay periods and timing of payers' funding. To receive any advertised product, you must become a member of PenFed, insured by NCUA. Welcome to the Five Year Plan Podcast. Pod three, three, seven, and uh, we have a very special guest coming up later on in the podcast. It's the one and only. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Obviously, YouTuber uh, Jeff Thomas is joining us, and he'll be talking to us in part two. Uh, I'm delighted to say that we're literally talking off the back of that interview now. With me during that interview was Kevin Day and James Endicott. I mean, Kevin. What a great interview that was with Jeff. What, 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 what a proper captain. Well, yeah, until he started to drop hints that I was slightly overweight. It was a great interview, yeah. I really enjoyed it. Uh, it was, um, no, it was, it was brilliant. I mean, we had some, some audio problems between the four of us, but uh, it, it, even if you have to strain your ears to listen to it, it's worth it. Because it's, I mean, I'm, right from the very start, when he was, when he was very proud, pleased and proud to say that Palace were his club, he still thinks of us as, his favourite time and some of the stories he had to tell on some of the ways he talked about the attitude. I mean, Bill Barber was a few weeks ago was slightly reluctant to sort of talk about some of the characters in the dressing room and, and, and the attitude and the, the physicality of the team was Jeff Jeff wasn't and his his insight into the being in the bath after the Liverpool game was great. And it's just yeah, it, it, as as James and I were slightly older than you, Jim, but for us that was our yeah, that was a time. Yeah, that was we, our era. That was our time. We were going to every home and away game. We were we were still young. That was that was the first Palace team that really really put Palace. You know, Malcolm Allison put Palace on the map to an extent. The team of the eighties to an extent, but that team of of ragamuffins basically of, of just bits and bobs and, and players from all over the the country that we got for fifteen thousand here, twenty five thousand there was really gave us a lot to be proud of. And Jeff reflected that in his interview. It's brilliant. Yeah, it was, it was really nice to hear his um, his real love for the club as well, a real a real passion for Crystal Palace, and that was really nice to hear as well. Yeah, and we finally solved the mystery. And as of who's who's to blame for that as yellow and black kit? Yeah, I exactly. Did, I, 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 I didn't know. It came as a terrible. I had no, I had no idea. Yeah. You you have to listen to the second part to find out yeah. why. Oh, why, why we're flabbergasted? <laughs> anyway, there you go. What a teaser! There was, but what was also interesting was listening to him talking because the time when he was at Palace was. Just as the Premier League was starting, you know, Premier yeah, League just, was starting in '92, yeah. and it was just after Italian '90 with Gaza's yeah. tears, and you know that period is when football changed. Yeah, it all changed in the early '90s with Gaza crying and England doing well, and the Premier League and Nick fucking Sky Hallby. TV and Nick Hall, all that bobbins, you know, and it all changed. And he was just on the cusp of it, being still old school but also being new as well. And yeah, I think yeah. he, he, he he really crosses. I think Jess one of those few players that crosses that mm. that bridge of being quite old fashioned but also quite modern as well. 
And I think it's a real bridge for the, for the modern footballing world. And I think anybody who's young, most people who are young listening to this, listening to the interview with him, will be, will be very proud of him as yeah. one of yeah. our great, great captains. He talks mm-hmm. about that as well, about bridging the, the gaps between old and new. Joining Palace actually was very interesting. Yeah. Before yeah. we do that, we're of course going to read an article from The Athletic, our sponsors. Before we do that, we're going to shout out to a patron. So can I get a drum mm. roll, please? Yeah, let's find out what pod this is though, first of all. Did I not yeah. say you pod three three seven? Three. Oh, okay. um, I think you did. Sorry. I'm too excited about Jeff Thomas being oh, on the podcast. That's nice. Um, so our Jeff. patron this week is Kiran Lakhani. Hey, hi Whoa, Kieran. Nice one, Kieran. How are you, Kieran? Oh, nice Thank you. Thank you. Or oh, Kieran, K I R A N. Kieran. Yeah, we gave about four different pronunciations in 15 it, seconds. In. Sorry, Kieran. They're, but thank they're you probably all support. wrong. Probably all wrong. And you can also support us at patreon.com forward slash FYP podcast. Someone else that's supporting us is The Athletic, a world class team of writers covering no. every club, including the best coverage of Crystal Palace. Subscription based website and app, completely ad free, no ads, no pop ups, just brilliant articles. Welcome to the new home of football writing. And if you visit theathletic.co.uk forward slash FYP, you can get a seven-day free trial and receive 50% off your yearly subscription. And this week's article, Kevin, is quite apt, actually, because we're talking yeah. to, to Jeff about Palace really trying to break away from being uh, that team from mid-table and, you know, 91 became third. Yeah. And really trying to push on. And this week's article from Matt Woosnam is called With £2 million at stake per finishing place, Palace's season is far from over, obviously talking about project restarts uh, and the Premier League coming back and essentially alluding to the fact that even though Palace are all but safe, there's a chance for us to really kick on. Um, And actually, with the squad we have, it could be an interesting time. It goes on to say later on in the article, with a versatile squad, Palace may find it easier than others, than otherwise, might have been to navigate their way through this intense run of matches. Whether Hodgson, typically a conservative manager, opts to rotate his squad or take advantage of the opportunity to use five substitutions, which is a new new thing that the Premier League are introducing for this end of season, if Premier League club opts to bring that in, oh, there you go. It's another element of football's return that is unclear. And he talks about the likes of Sacco, Schlupp and Kuyate, who were out at the end of the season when it ended, yeah. and now back. Is this actually a chance, Kevin, for Palace to push on and, and actually maybe have a better end of season than we thought? It's possible. I think they will go for the five substitutes. We've, we've seen from the Bundesliga that I think in every game, the five substitutes have all been used. So I, I think that's partly because players won't be match fit right at the start. Um, whether Hudson uses it as an opportunity to play some youngsters, I don't know. I mean, there are rumours that Schlupp and Tompkins picked up knocks in training this week, so we don't know if they will be available. Hopefully they will. It's still a couple of weeks' time. But um, I'd quite forgotten, because I'm normally so nervous at the end of the season, I'd forgotten that we'd actually done, we'd won three games in a row before going into this. Oh. <laughs> and we are on 39 points. So probably only one point will see it. And it's, I think it's really, we're going to be the BBC's first ever live Premier League game as well. Yes. We were, are we? Is that we true? are, yeah. We were Amazon's first, the first game to kick off on Amazon was was the reverse fixture, Palace-Bournemouth, and then so Bournemouth Palace. Which, uh, which uh, game is on the BBC the f- that the, we're on? The f- who, who, who are we playing? Bournemouth. Our first game. Oh, Bournemouth. Bournemouth. All right, all right, okay. It's going to be right, live cool. on the BBC, and that, that'll be like, the streets will be empty. It'll be like lockdowns back on. <laughs> Everyone will be indoors just watching Bournemouth <laughs> Palace, which is an indication of this, the level of game that... that the, the BBC are going to be getting free to do but <laughs> also what's interesting as well because we have got and Matt picks up on this in his article we have got some tricky games to come the way it, but 
so far, I think only 22% of the home, home teams have won their games in the Bundesliga. Yeah. It's really not, you know, after all the fuss that Brighton and Villa and West Ham made about wanting to play home games, not neutral games, it would be hilarious if it turns out that they lose all their home games. <laughs> uh, because that's clearly what's happening in the in the Bundesliga. The, the lack of fans is 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 evening it up quite a, quite a way. So you know, it, it's interesting. It would be great, yeah. It'd be great if we could finish lockdown by winning at Bournemouth and then absolutely totally relaxing and then focusing on, as Matt says, getting up a place or two, even if it is just to get two, four, six million pound more than we would have got. And and of course, in the circumstances, any extra money is going to be welcome for any club. Mm. Yeah, James, it is interesting, isn't it? Because I don't yeah. think anyone quite knows these conditions they're playing in now with no fans and basically feels like a pre-season game and the idea it of does, the advantage yeah. has gone out the window. It, it does feel actually, with everyone being so uncertain, and I know those clubs down the bottom, that bottom six, will be you know very nervous, I'm sure, going into these games. Hmm. Palace can almost relax a little bit. And we've seen in the past when other teams are nervous and Palace can relax towards the end of the season, we actually, we, we sort of flourish. We can take advantage of that. Well, absolutely. I mean, oh, you know, let, let's let's first say, you know, we're not mathematically safe. So, you know, I don't want to do a <laughs> run around my living room oh, and no. tears staying up or anything like that. Yeah. Um, but, you know, but yes, it does feel to me like a bit of a sort of glorified pre-season where we can watch all the pre-season games on telly. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it is, I think it's a, you know what? It's just a good. It's just good to have football back. It's yeah, good to have yeah, Palace yeah. back, and, and you know, well, whatever. I think we're in a really great position. We're not fighting for anything, and hopefully, we, you know, we should be safe. And I just think, you know, we're in a very fortunate position. Thank goodness we're not one of those teams down the bottom. We've actually we've got like nine yeah. games to to us save their season, and that must be held not having your supporters there, yeah. which is something that you you all need when you when you need victories, you need points, you need your support. You know, we're in a great position. You know, hopefully, hopefully we'll play some exciting football and we'll be on the BBC more than once. <laughs> I don't know. Who, Who knows? knows? It's going to be, it's going to be very interesting. I think Kevin watch, it is, yeah. watching the games from home and I've watched a lot of games recently from home, having had a baby, knowing everyone else is there, but watching when no one else is there, it's going to be a bit of, knowing you can't be there. I think it's going to be a bit of a weird feeling for the first few, isn't it? I think it will be. In a way though, the fact that no one can be there and obviously they'll have to there's some gaps at the top of the homestead where you can clearly see through the gates. <laughs> They'll have to put a bit of cardboard over those. The fact that no one, no one is there, it'd be, it'd be sort of worse if if you knew that some fans were there and you couldn't be. So the fact that it's everyone's in the same boat and and please God, Liverpool fans will stay away from Anfield or are kept away from Anfield if if we're the game that they win the title, um, the asterisk title. Um, but yeah, it, it, <laughs> it will be weird. But every game. Yeah, the fact is that every Palace game between now and the end of the season is going to be live on telly somewhere. So, yeah. that, I mean, that was, again, that's really exciting. And as soon as, as like Ender says, as soon as we've got the points that make us safe, it's going to be quite fun. You know, we'll have, yeah, our, so. we'll have our mates there on Zoom, hopefully. I'll, I'll probably still be nervously walking around the garden, <laughs> checking, checking, the, <laughs> checking the score every five minutes. But, you know, it'll be, at least I'll be close to home. That's true. That's we, could, true. we could do some watch parties or something. Yeah, I'm sure we could do that, yeah. I mean, that'd be interesting. It's going to be interesting. It's going to be a weird couple of weeks. But um, as yes, Matt mm. says in his article, actually a chance for us to maybe kick on and maybe even beat that 49 points that we got last season, which was our best ever. <coughs> yeah, well, it's not, have, it's not going to carry away. Have they said what the gap is in between the end of this season and the beginning of next year? They're, they're, is, is they're, that... 
Does that have? There's, there's speculation that it will be around September the fifteenth. That they will, the clubs, right. clubs, um, clubs might be allowed to play friendlies before this season starts again. Uh, right. Again, but they they're being discouraged from playing friendlies after the season finishes and before the next one starts because then obviously they've got to fit in the, the Euros next season and the World Cup the season after oh, that God. so God, yes. it, it will it will have a knock-on effect and you, the one thing UEFA have said is that the Champions League and the Europa League will be starting when it normally starts so they will they will want they will want leagues leagues up and running by then hopefully so but, but around about right. mid, around about mid-September is, is the right, okay. is the current speculation but again that changes on a daily basis because you yeah. know all it takes is for one player at one club to test positive and that club has to go into lockdown for yeah. everyone else to yeah. cry foul. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, so far, Touchwood, the Bundesliga has gone brilliantly, but you know, they're yeah. slightly more efficient than we are, which is a cliche. But, you know. but, it's, but, it's it's but it seems though, I mean, from what, what players are saying, we discussed this last week, that players are being very vocal. One or two players are saying they don't want to play because they've got family members who are vulnerable. But, Players have said that in the Premier League, they're really, really happy with with how they're being looked after, yeah. with the facilities, with the with the the way pitches are being sprayed, the way they're being kept apart from each other and tested. So, fingers crossed, it will it will get back and it will it will come Good. to a conclusion. It has so, so far. The steps seem to be sort of working out, but we will we'll yeah. see. And of course, we'll be back. Oh, reviewing actual games. Yeah, brilliant. Um, but for the meantime, you can visit The Athletic and see their coverage on everything that's happening at the moment at theathletic.co.uk. And if you do do that and then go slash FYP, you can start a seven-day free trial and receive 50% off your yearly subscription. After break, we're going to talk exclusively to the legend that is Sir Jeff Thomas. Um, again, as, as Kevin said earlier, uh, Jeff's audio is a bit in and out. I've tried my best to mix it and make it sound as best as possible. So make sure you've got the volume up as high as possible because we want to hear what he says because he says some brilliant things. Uh, so here is Jeff Thomas. My brother-in-law died suddenly. And now my sister and her kids have to sell their home. That's why I told my husband we could not put off getting life insurance any longer. An agent offered us a 10-year, $500,000 policy for nearly $50 a month. Then we called SelectQuote. SelectQuote found us identical coverage for only $19 a month, a savings of $369 a year. Whether you need a $500,000 policy or a $5 million policy, Select Quote could save you more than 50% on term life insurance. For your free quote, go to SelectQuote.com. SelectQuote.com. That's SelectQuote.com. Select Quote. We shop, you save. Full details on example policies at SelectQuote.com slash commercials. Joining us. This week is a proper Palace legend. He played 249 games for the club. He won Supporters Player of the Season twice and was voted into Palace's all-time centenary 11 in 2005 and was the first Palace player ever to captain the club to an FA Cup final. It's, of course, the one and only Jeff Thomas. Jeff, welcome to the podcast. Great cheers. <laughs> when we were first texting at the start of the year, you were going to come and join us, but I think you'd just got back from Australia. I think you've got family in Australia, so you must have got back from Australia 
just before the lockdown. Yeah, my daughter lives out there and in Melbourne. And the day we got back, the, the Australia actually went down uh, to shut down in the airports. And anybody who arrived in Australia had to go into quarantine for 14 days. So we just did, if there is such a thing in these times, there's a perfect window of getting in and getting out of Australia and coming back to, to what is a really strange time. Yeah, you, you did that. You did that very well. We're delighted uh, that you can join us um, on the podcast. And how has lockdown been for you since coming back? To be honest, it, it's, time's flying. I don't know what it's like for everybody else, but you know, we're, everybody's been going out on a Thursday evening doing the applause for the NHS. Yeah. That Thursday keeps to, you know, for the last 10 weeks, it's come around so quickly. <laughs> and, you know, I'm sure, like everybody else, everybody's got jobs to do around the house, which have been putting off for years and years. But after 10 weeks, I'm starting to look, what else can I do? So it's, uh, it's kept, our, kept ourselves busy. Yeah, I've not even learned how to do Zoom properly in 10 weeks. Which is why, which is why they started late. <laughs> um, and obviously, I wanted to make sure that we mention. And again, when we were texting about you coming on, you were going to be promoting your fifth and I believe final Tour de France, which was going to be the 4th of July, 17 years to the day that you were diagnosed with leukaemia. What's the latest with that then? Has that been postponed till next year or later in the year? What's, what's the plan? Yeah, yeah, we postponed it till next year. We were con- uh, thinking about following the tour and putting it back to the end of September, but it's still too risky. We don't know if even in September um, everything's going to be clear enough and safe enough for the, the guys who are taking part. So uh, we're up to about, we've raised £460,000 already. And we just felt with everything that's going on, if we can reset our targets to £2 million for next year and have a longer, obviously a longer lead time, then, you know, it may in some bizarre twist of fate better for us because we're finding more people are getting involved with sponsorship packages and things like that so fingers crossed it all keeps keeps going forward and the momentum keeps going well and yeah this time next year we're thinking about getting back on the Viking going around France again yeah and I'm sure lots of Palace fans listening will will want to help out where they can Mm. Um, so if you could remind us where people can donate and also just let us know what's you know over the years you've been doing the fundraising what have Palace fans and Palace as a club been like because it seems like they've been very very supportive to you as of you know a favoured ex-player right to the day I was diagnosed um, what we didn't have back then was social media 2003 it didn't sound too long ago but in in respects to social media it wasn't there Um, and it was just fan sites. I think it was the Homesdale End and there was another site. I can't remember what that was called, but I was just getting reams and reams of pages sent through onto my email. Um, Jane Fuller, who's, who's still connected to the club and a, a good friend of mine, she was sending me all these emails through. And all the messages, it was just endless messages of goodwill from fans all around the world, Crystal Palace fans. And, it meant an awful lot. And from that day, you know, it's, Palace is, is my club. I, I was there and at the, the best time of my career and I had the best time with a group of guys that I see as family. And every time I go back to Crystal Palace, it feels like I, I left yesterday. It's still a massive part of me. And uh, 
and the club are even, you know, certain characters who um, are probably not too highly thought of, uh, certain former chairman have, have been very <laughs> helpful, you know, and uh, <laughs> uh, Steve Parrish and Steve Rowett and the new owners uh, carried on really supporting the work I was doing. So it's, it's been phenomenal, you know, the support that from, from the club and the supporters also as well. Yeah, and, and, and Kevin, you know, I I don't know if players sometimes, and, and Jeff, I'll ask you in a minute, realise what an impact they have on clubs and, and how fondly they are remembered. But when you talk about favoured ex-players, I mean, Jeff will always come near the top of that list. So it doesn't really surprise me that fans have been so supportive with this. I, I, I can't tell you how delighted I am to hear Jeff say that Palace is his club. Yeah, because I know he was really highly thought of at Wolves and Barnsley and at Crew where he came from. But he's our legend as far as we're concerned. Jeff is our legend to be in the top three for most Palace fans, certainly of our generation. So it's, it's, a, it's a real delight to hear Jeff. So he was an important part for six seasons, six of our best seasons. Jeff was leading us out, leading a team of not the best players in the world, but proper South London Warriors. And they're the sort of players that we loved at Palace. And, and I'm, I'm, I'm actually quite emotional to hear Jeff say that. It was an, it's an emotional time lockdown, but to, I was so worried that Jeff might have said, yeah, I'm still Barnsley, basically, in my favourite team. But... <laughs> we got that out of the way. Also, I like I like the characters that Jeff refers to because we all know exactly who he's talking about. But we'll probably get onto him later on. I imagine. <laughs> I think you getting emotional eight minutes in might be a record. Actually, it probably is actually. It I know. Is. Normally, yeah, definitely. Yeah, no, no glass of wine yet either. That's probably why. <laughs> Enders, I know that this time yep. of being a Palace fan was quite a pivotal one for you as well. So I guess. Jeff represents, you know, an important and exciting time for you because you'd only just recently become a Palace fan of that. Yeah, it's sort of the mid-80s, really, when I moved to London. Um, I'm actually, I was born not far from where Jeff was born. I'm, I'm uh, from Halifax, Jeff, which is not, oh. which is just on the um, A58 from Rochdale, which is not far from where you were born. And, um, yeah, no, it was a really important time for me. And those years, I mean, they were very successful years at the club, but Jeff was just, one of the great players there at the time and a real leader and just something that we all looked up to. And also I remember the pride of when you first put on uh, your England shirt as well, Jeff, that was an amazing, an amazing time for all Palace fans as well. You wearing the English shirt. And it was, it was just a, a very, it was a very fun time for me supporting the club. And I look back obviously with slightly rose tinted glasses and we were successful in the FA Cup final almost almost being in Europe but to me you know they were a great team and you know Jeff epitomized all that and um, it was a very exciting time and again I'm I'm not quite in tears just yet but I'm very emotional as well. <laughs> yeah, Jeff did you did you know much about Palace before you came to us for the princely sum of £50,000? Were we just one of a few clubs that were in for you or were we, were we the first to spot your potential? No well Dario Gradi, who's obviously got connections with the club anyway, and I think he'd worked with Ron Nodes at Wimbledon before before that as well. And Dario, even from the first signing, said you, you've got a chance to be a professional footballer. You know, they threw in the languishing in the fourth division. And I was just sort of playing non-league football. And he saw something in me that not a lot of coaches did see. And, but in two years of um, 
teaching me how to the, the basics really of being a professional footballer. There was clubs like Everton, Liverpool, and the Manchester clubs are all scouts were there more or less every week. There was David Platt there as well at the same time. So there was a number of players there, John Pemberton, that they were looking at. But um, Dario thought Crystal Palace was perfect stepping stone for me. He always thought Platy was able to go straight into the top flight football, but he, he thought I needed to probably start the rung lower down. Learn a little bit more about the, the game. Platy had had a friendship at Man United, and then he mentioned Steve Copeland. Ron knows I've been here so many times, and the opportunity came around, and he said that this is the perfect club for you at this time. So I, uh, you know, took him at his word and put faith in what he was saying to me, and. Uh, Looked like it was uh, definitely the right choice. And what was the jump up like? Because obviously it was fourth division to second division. Were you fairly confident that that was going to be something you could take on? And what was the atmosphere like at Palace at the time? Because I think they just started to sort of get into their groove under Steve, weren't they? Yeah. Yeah, and it was. Um, I was. I think again, I was fortunate. I, I came down with Neil Redford, and Neil Redford. I've got a proper northern yeah. accent, as you can tell, but. Neil Redfern's even, he's a Yorkshire lad and he's, he's broader than me. So he took the pressure off me a little bit from the South London guys. And, uh, you know, it, we seem to, um, I don't know, it, it, the bond between the players happened really quickly. Uh, there was characters there, as you say, already and it was, it was starting to improve as a side. And I, I just look back, you, you say about, you, you know, you say nice words about myself, but I was fortunate. I, I landed in, a dressing room that was ready to take off and the characters in there that were just desperate to to prove themselves as being players for, for a while but as a bunch we seem to gel together and that doesn't happen too many times in a career and it was just fun most of the time it was fun it was obviously <laughs> some dark days but uh, most of the most of the time, it was fun going into training. The, you know, Andy Gray, the old story with the sheepskin coat and all this sort of thing. And, and Ian Wright was just a, a character he is. He's just um, you know, a great guy. And none of them have changed. That's a great thing. And all of them, majority of them, have gone on to do well in, in whatever career they've chosen. So it just shows the character of that side. And, and Phil Barber was saying a few weeks ago, Jeff, that Steve Coppel just basically left you to it. He realised he had a really strong dressing room and, and let you sort things out yourself. Is that is that fairly true? It was, and you mentioned Phil Barber. Phil Barber was such a gentle soul and he just didn't fit into that scenario of what you thought was like a... It was like a walking into a scene from the Gladiators. You know, it was like <laughs> all on all the time. But there was, there was calming influences in that. They were like... Um, just people there buffering all this and dampening down sometimes when it needed dampening down. And Phil Barber was one of them guys. He'd just say a couple of sentences every day. And it just thought, oh, yeah, hello, Phil. You know, he's there. Uh, and Gareth Southgate, he was only a young kid, but he was coming through and he, he was head and shoulders above um, uh, a lot of the players that were coming through at the time, just in his stature. He had something about him that... Steve Copeland, Alan Smith, saw that uh, him and uh, Simon Osborne, uh, Jolly, all young players that just seemed to just mould into the dressing room. And 
I, I think even when they talk about the characters of the club at the time, that starting point helped them out for, to have a great career because they, they learned so much from the Mark Wrights, mm-hmm. Ian Wright, Andy Gray, all different skills. <laughs> 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 but um, they, they learned an awful lot about life as well. On and off the I did a, uh, a, thing, a TV show with Marco Gabbiadini just after Christmas, Jeff. Uh, I say he did a TV show. We paid him 100 quid to dress up as Derby's mascot. But he's, uh, <laughs> he's, he said when he joined Palace a few years later, he said it was a really, really hard dressing room to, to come into and that you were all so developed as a club. You'd grown up together that he found it really hard to cope with. Was that fair as well? Sorry, it just broke up a little bit. Was it Marco yeah. Gavardini he said? Yeah. Yeah, I think for Marco, he came in and he was replacing the yeah. number one, you know, and I think everybody was deflated uh, when Ian Wright left. I mean, the dressing room took a little time to recover and uh, Marco Gavardini came in with, you know, he was um, a big money signing at the time and he did well, but he wasn't here right, and I think our personality we lost. You know, he did well on the pitch, but the personality within the dressing room, it was tough for him to sort of try and replicate what was just gone. And, you know, everybody's different, and it took a while for him to sort of settle in, I think. Yeah, because we hear... A... And for us to sort of um, to gel yeah. with him as well. We hear... I listen to a lot of podcasts with ex-footballers, and you hear so much about the dressing room togetherness and how important it is but it, it sounded like that it it almost felt like home for you quite quickly and obviously you're coming down from up north to London but it sounds like you settled quite quickly and even though I think it was probably quite an old school environment wasn't it it's that old Mitchum training ground it wasn't you know the nice training ground they have now it was a very different environment but it sounds like it did it become home quite quickly yeah it did and and again I've got certain people to thank for that because I think i a foot in each camp because the old school and the old traditions of the club were there with uh, George Wood and Jim Cannon. Jim Cannon was a captain and they more or less took me under their wings straight away. But at the same time, I was still young enough to be with the likes of the writers and John Salakos and you know, I was probably 22 at the time. I, I, all I wanted to do was learn and mature into a, a player that could at that level but I had ambitions to play higher and when I spoke to Steve Copley he said he aims to get this club into the top flight pretty soon so it just felt like it, I was a piece of the jigsaw and I, I felt right in coming to the club and into the dressing room I felt really comfortable really quickly and I, even Jim Cannon the great captain um, and I'll never forget that he just used to give me words of encouragement uh, even in pre-season, we went to Sweden so early and I, I think I came off the bench and uh, played and, you know, it was one of them games where you struggled for about 45 minutes and I came on when all the Swedish guys were tiring and we won the game about 16-1. Classic. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it didn't mean anything, but, it, but the words Steve Cannon was saying to me after, you know, that... You made the difference, you look strong, you, you look like you're something that we have needed for quite a while and you're going to work well with what we've got. So, you know, that's that's leadership. That's where um, good captains come to the fore, really. I was a new guy, so was Neil Redford. And 
you always have an arm to, to pop around you when you needed it and then kick on the backside if you want to come. And are those qualities you then took into being a captain yourself? So obviously you became captain and led us you know, to the cup final later on, which we'll come to. But it sounds like that, that was a big captain-wise influence on you. Yeah, I, I, I always remember when I was starting out that I got my chance at crew and there was a guy... It's, it's like certain things, certain um, incidents happening in your career that seem like stepping stones. And it was a guy that was like, it has been around the lower leagues, a uh, guy called Vernon Allen. Nice guy, centre forward. He looked really nice. He had a nice car and nice clothes. He's <laughs> been around. <laughs> and I was being a bit narky one day in training and I always give 100% in training. And he was just... Uh, well, he was tossing it off a little bit. And I had a word with him. And he's just said, who do you think you're upstart? And I just replied saying, listen, you'll be playing at this level for the rest of your career. I'm off in a, you know, in a, a year or so. And that was my attitude all the way through my career. Even when I was getting to a point where my knees were going and everything. If I went onto the pitch, I wanted to give all I had. And so that gave me then the ability to tell somebody who was better at me played on pitches with people a lot better than me in my side and against. And he just felt I had a right to be there. If I was giving 100%, I had the right to tell people like Ian Wright, Mark Wright, when they weren't on on their top performance, I, you know, I can have a little word and give them a deal. How so, did that go down with him? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it went down. Right, was all right, actually. Reichy and Reichy were okay. Um, I think if... It's all about respect, isn't it? I think if, and that's what we have pretty quickly amongst the, the side. And, and certain players came in and didn't fit in because they didn't want to fit in or they felt like they, they were a little bit superior or they had something else that they felt like they could do to get by. And, and one of them, for, for instance, was a, a very, very good footballer, Stan Collymore. Stan had everything. Stan was... Um, Root of a guy who was strong, he was fast, and obviously went on for a fantastic career. But at the time when he came to Palace, there was an air about him that just didn't fit into to the team, which was a shame because he, he could have been a fantastic player for Crystal Palace. Mm. But just wrong time for him, that's all. But he's, you know, he was a nice enough character at the time and could have done ever so well, but he just didn't want to learn from from righty and righty like other kids did at the time. Yeah, well, he obviously went on to do very well. I mean, he did all right. He did all right for himself. Um, you, uh, you talked about, you know, displaying that determination on the pitch. And obviously it had an impact because you were voted Supporters Player of the Year at the end of your first season. That must have been a moment where you thought, oh, these guys get me. Like, I'm, you know, I've joined the right club here and they understand what I'm about. Because that's pretty rare to get that in your first season. You know, I remember my first tackle in the Palace shirt in the, in the league game at um, Huddersfield. We drew the game. I think we were 2-0 up and we drew. And I went into a 50-50 challenge. And Palace have always had great away support. And the end of the... I can't remember what Huddersfield's old ground was called, but... London Road. The end of the, the, the ground seemed to lift. And I felt it. You know, I've been playing in front of about... At best, 1,500 people. I was playing in this, and it seemed an awful lot to me. It was about 13,000 people. And then 
I felt that Crystal Palace fans all of a sudden have that connection. And I knew I was under pressure because there was a player called uh, Tinker Taylor. Uh, and he was a fan's favourite and he was a totally different player to me. And I knew I had to um, be on my game to get, you know, to get the, the sponsor support. And I think their first home game was Middlesbrough. And wasn't having a great game, but I scored a, a decent goal from outside the box. And that just settled me down and I felt right time to start back on and do the best I can and I'm looking at Palace's seasons because we were sixth in 88 uh, and then we went up the next season third in the playoffs yeah. what, what was it about this team that was able to just you know after the year after that was obviously cup final and then third what was it about this team that was able to, for the trajectory to just keep going up and up and up with, with this bunch of players I think we're all from a similar background. I think um, <clears throat> said before that Brighty had probably not got where he wanted to be at uh, the age he was. He wanted to burn his career. He started out of Leicester. He was under probably the shadow of Gary Lineker, who was doing really well at the time, and I think Smithy as well, Alan Smith. So I think he was struggling to get a place. Uh, Andy Gray had been here, there, and everywhere. Started off at Palace, I think, and as a kid, had got released, and he came back to find his feet. Ian Wright, likewise, too small, too weak, hasn't got the enough physical um, attribute to make him a footballer. And all of a sudden, you chuck that in the mix, and you've got all these young kids wanting to, to prove themselves. And I think it was a case of. You have to show you had the balls to to really prove that you wanted to you determined enough to, to make it, but also have the ability to to go that step further. And I think we all seem to mature at the same time, physically and mentally. You know, mentally we took some hits, not more so on at Anfield in our probably biggest disaster is in you know a Palace shirt, I believe. But um, we learned so much for that. I knew in the dressing room, in the, in the, the bath after that game, we'd be fine. We'd be fine. Because we actually started laughing <laughs> by the time we're getting out of the bath. <laughs> because there was nowhere else to go. We either, we either put our heads underneath and drowned ourselves in that bath that night, or we got out of the bath and then turn ourselves into men, really. And I think we got taught so many lessons that night what it was like to be a professional footballer at the top level. And we, I think some of, some of us might have thought we'd already arrived. That made us realise we still have quite a bit to do. And that's, and that's what I say. I'm so proud of the way the guys responded, you know, gutted for Perry Suckling because he seemed to be on that and took a hit and, uh, and, and then... Nigel Martin came in and he was another piece of the jigsaw. That's why we kept slowly improving from what uh, Stephen first uh, taken over. Jeff, I, I remember you talk about the away fans. I was at the, the Southampton game on the Saturday after the 9 0. And we were all on the way down there. Everyone was going, How are we going to react? And, and from it was straight, as soon as you walked out, even there was something in the way the team walked onto the pitch that made us realise immediately that you were going, that you were going to react positively. And from the kickoff, we all kind of knew. That was a one-off. That's never going to happen again. And is that how it felt for you? 
Well, if, to be honest, we were probably all a little bit nervous. Um, but we, we felt that we had to turn it around pretty quickly and prove that it was a blip. Um, and we'd been, you know, all our hands up, we been taught a lesson midweek. But um, no, I think we couldn't do any more, really. I think we. Oh, we do. The characters in the, in the side just wouldn't allow anybody to, to falter. And we knew we should, but like I say in the bar, <coughs> tell the story about John Pemberton. You know, he was just, he said a funny line that just cracked everybody up. And we just, on the bus back, we knew that we were going to be fine. So it didn't matter who it was on the other weekend, if it was a bigger game in Southampton, I think we were going to be fine. Well, and obviously then we, you know, we get Liverpool in the semi-final if you end of that season. Must have been playing on all the players' minds that 9-0. Was it used as fuel? Was it you know, some sort of revenge? Or is that not the way, is that more the way fans see it than players? I think that was, it, the players get a lot of recognition during the season. Uh, uh, you know, Phil Barber mentioned that Steve used to leave us alone. But when it came to the semi-final, Steve Coppola showed what a great manager he was, I think. The way he, he sort of led us out from winning the game at Cambridge, he turned the, everybody, every other team probably was winding down for the end of the season. Uh, the weather was getting nicer normally. Games seemed to slow down, getting closer to the end of the season. We didn't, but we still have things to play for. We wanted to make sure we got in our best position. But Steve ramped it up. He made training harder. He made us focus harder. And mentally, he was getting us ready for really boring, to be honest, in the first 45 minutes of that game. And it was, if you watch back, uh, we just did a man to man on as much and as best we could. And I'll never forget, he said, if we're 1 2 0 down at half time, that's a success. Wow. And we will have the ability and the strength to recover from that. So we went 1 0 down, and nobody could foresee John Pemberton <laughs> doing the mad thing. He's like a rocket. Running that quick. He was, he was, it, it was like it a was rocket. A, it was a rocket, wasn't he? It was amazing. It, it was amazing. I mean, he will tell you, he was, um, I think, spotted as a potential to get uh, a place in a college in America to be like a, the great white hope of sprinting. Um, but it, it was the first time I've seen him run that quick and get a quality ball in like he did. It was a fantastic, uh, fantastic move. And then that really sort of triggered it off. I mean, it happened that quickly. We didn't have time to think of anything apart from we are in this game now. This is going to be a proper game. And it turned out to be done. What, what were you thinking when Pembo went down the right? Because I think there's been quotes from Koppel later on thinking, oh, what, I've told you to keep it tight. What are you doing? What were you thinking? Well, the... It is the old manager sort of uh, spiel at half time, keep it tight for the next 10 minutes and then let, let's see how it is. But uh, yeah, I think everybody was surprised by that. You know, even so, the, the fans, when you look back, I watched it when it was on the TV a couple of weeks back. It, the atmosphere was, I don't know, it was sultry. It was like a really sunny day, but it was, it was seemed to be smoke in the air and the balloons and the atmosphere. It just seemed. 
it was an atmosphere we'd never experienced before. And and when Pembo did that, it just it, the place lifted, and uh, it was great to see us being able to repay the Palace fans who had been you know been through it all and returning from Anfield that that night. They were still smiling and singing and everything. We never forget that either. So it's yeah, it was it made everything special. It's time to get your checking account to zero with free checking from PenFed. That's zero ATM fees, zero balance requirements, and zero time spent waiting for your paycheck to direct deposit because you can receive it up to two days early. Open your account with just $25 and see how big zero can be. Apply online today at PenFed.org slash free checking. Early direct deposit eligibility may vary between pay periods and timing of payers' funding. To receive any advertised product, you must become a member of PenFed, insured by NCUA. I'm intrigued by this belief that you had in yourselves because, you know, believing that, you know, Liverpool were a big, big team at the time, best team in England. That belief that you guys had that you could take anyone on and recover from any score down, is that purely from the manager? You know, where does that come from? Because I think that's, that's almost like that's sort of the, the magic secret that a lot of clubs are looking for, isn't it? That not many have. But where did that come from? Because it sounds like it was absolutely unrivaled, that, that self-belief. <laughs> Yeah, I, I think it was, we had a chance of making history, I think. And I think we were 90 minutes away from doing that, getting Crystal Palace to Wembley the first time. But individually, getting ourselves there the mm. first time. It was only Andy Thorne, I think, that I'd experienced, you know, uh, that atmosphere. So I think we just, it was a case of all, all or nothing in some respects. Uh, we didn't want to leave anything in the dressing room or anything on the pitch where we could have done anything. I think yeah, that day, everything had to be perfect for us to win that game without doubt. Um, but sometimes you play against sides, and I think, well, I was at Palace. I never burst a bubble about the, the feeling against Arsenal. Arsenal had this sort of sense of superiority against us when I was there. And I think the year after I left, um, Palace side won at uh, Highbury. But I never managed to do that. And that's what I think Liverpool had over a lot of sides back then. It was so, seemed to be the superior side. It's like Man United when they were dominating the football as they did. They had something about them. But as soon as you burst out of the bubble, then that's it. You, that, that little bit of respect, that probably holds you, you back a little bit as gone. So you go go at them full tilt and you could see the reaction of some of their players they, they didn't like it they didn't fancy it at all so we knew we had a, a really good chance Jeff did you um, did you feel as though the Liverpool team was slightly overconfident that day at all did you think they went in there knowing thinking sorry just did you did, did the Liverpool players did you do you think they were a little bit overconfident at the semi-final um, I think I remember Ian Rush scoring the first goal and the, the celebration was an, a celebration of a team taking the lead in the semi-final really, right, yeah, it yeah. was like a little bit of here we go again Yeah, and um, yeah I, we sensed that but 
you can see the reaction when they went three two up or two two all that they were backing it at their full two. Sure, well. sure. So I think I think um, it was yeah. I think we probably maybe that's why they were only one nil up. But I think they probably got the one goal and felt they didn't have to do too much more. Yeah. Yeah, they paid the price for that. Absolutely. Thank goodness. <laughs> <laughs> Thank goodness, for sure. <laughs> that, you know, that, that sort of rallying mentality against, you know, against the big boys and trying to burst that bubble, I guess that was the same mentality going into the final. And, you know, we've all seen the replays of the final many times. But yeah. what was it like being a captain, you know, walking out, leading that team out? I mean, that must have been incredible. <laughs> No, I just started smiling start describing because the old Wembley was fantastic arena for just that, just that, just walking out. Listen to a bike with me while you're in the tunnel, you know, you, you, you're beating the wall up, you, you're just itching to get out there and, and then it just fills you with pride, firstly, and for, for the, the club itself as well. That, you know, I always remember looking to be left and, and seeing, you know, like Brian Robson there, who was, I think, as a midfielder. Anybody who was playing football back then used to put him on a pedestal as being, that's the way you want to be as a, a, as a professional. And we didn't really know much about Alex Ferguson then. Uh, sadly, we, <laughs> we sort of uh, we did a, the switch to allow him to go on to do what he did, really. But, um, as a Manchester lad, I've felt so much pride anyway walking out against, you know, as a boy, I was a Man City fan, so it was my old enemy, really. But uh, walking out in front of so many people as well was just mind-blowing. It was just, you can't just, well, you, probably somebody who's more educated than me can describe it in words, but I can't, I, it just blew my mind. It was just... Um, the colour and everything, and again, the atmosphere just was first time I'd experienced something like that. It was it was like a, a, a big party, and there was no negative thoughts in, in that match, the first match. I think both sides went at it thinking they were going to win, yeah. and it turned out to be an entertaining game, and then you've got the, the, the storyline with Ian Mike yeah. off the bench. And you just, it's like sliding doors, you just wish... You had that last seven minutes again. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, you'd, you'd, you'd do something slightly different. You'd try a little bit harder to close yeah. somebody down and all that. I think all of, every single player on that pitch would probably be thinking the same thing. Jim? That's football. You know, Mark used to this thing. Jeff, <laughs> Jeff how, how strange did it feel when they, they still made you go up the steps, didn't they, and do the sort of shaking hands stuff? But without getting the trophy, that, that must have yeah. felt really odd, wasn't it? But again, it was something that we, what everybody wanted to right. experience. I think we, I think at the time we felt, well, we've got an opportunity of coming back in next week and doing this again. I remember uh, walking past all the dignitary and I saw the Palace fans to me right and pretending to lift the <laughs> FA Cup. I've got a picture of it. <laughs> And it was in my hand. Um, yeah, it was just we we just enjoyed every single, even the build-up to the game. We enjoyed. It was just something you, you felt like it was a one-off, 
and FA Cups were one off back yeah. then. It was, uh, yeah, definitely. It was the biggest stage in football, really. And yeah, we, we felt like we. We're lucky. Uh, we, we, have the, we don't talk about that, but uh, we just talk about the Liverpool <laughs> yeah. final game. We don't talk about the replay either. It's just, no. I think we, we, oh. everybody can take a lot of pride from, Jeff, can from the, that first game. Jeff, can I ask you just one question about the replay? Um, how do you as a team feel when you got given those shirts? Huh. <laughs> uh, are you asking me that because you know I don't know yeah. I don't know the answer I don't know the answer I'm asking you a genuine James genuine James 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 <laughs> no it's shocking <laughs> well it was my idea to, to play black and yellow only because Steve Koppel was uh, I know I know he was like trying to find a colour that we'd, we'd played in and not lost and we sadly we, we didn't have a kit that, that filled that requirement so I just told him that I played in the youth side that never lost in black and yellow. And then a couple of days later, this, this kid turned up. I actually like it, by the way, Jeff. Sure. I actually like the kid, so... <laughs> I, I think if we would have won it, I do like the kid. then I think it would have been a, a nice keepsake. Yeah. But I don't think a lot of people have got it hanging on the wall. Now. <laughs> sure. Well, it was... I, I, Jeff, I have to say, I still blame the kit, but I also blame the referee because that... How, how did he not give a penalty? When you were, when you were, I mean, no do, you, do you still close your eyes and see that? Because I mean, it was a, it was a bad game. We know that we, we didn't. Neither side played as well as the Saturday, but that was, I mean, it was five yards inside the box. I mean, it was wasn't just inside yeah. the box. It was ludicrous. I couldn't believe it because Wembley was probably the only pitch at that stage of the season that yeah. was perfect, and you could see a big divot where his knee had hit the ground and. and took me down and it was it was like you say it was good two metres inside the, the box and if he didn't give a foul that would have been great he would have accused me of diving and that's fine but he McClare got me good and proper and he gave a free kick and the linesman was just there as well and I just think yeah yeah again it's one of those moments that you, if you're going to win something that you need that to go for you and that, that could have changed yeah. the game totally we would have brought on Ian Ryan. He would have bagged it a few more <laughs> <laughs> after days. Well, it could have, I mean, it could, have, it could have changed Palace's history in, in general. But what, what's interesting is, you know, a lot of clubs will get to the cup final, have that disappointment, disappointment in the replay, and it might not mean as much. But that team is still loved so much by Palace. Fans. I mean, four of those players are voted into, including yourself, into the centenary eleven. But even though it's ultimately an unsuccessful, disappointing period for the club. Palace fans love that team. I guess that shows you how much that those players meant to them and, and how much even just getting to the final means to a club like Crystal Palace. Yeah. Yeah, yeah and I think, again, it, it, a lot of teams sometimes would have rested on the laurels and thought, right, we've had a decent season last year, first season in the top flight, doing okay. But then we started the next season, all guns blazed, you know, and I think probably as a player who went, that was the best season for me. We just, we felt invincible, really. We were walking out on, it didn't matter who we were playing. And we felt we could win any game. So, it, again, that's going back to right from the start, the, the team was still growing together. And uh, the reasons why we didn't get into Europe and this and the other, I think that's probably a bigger reason why 
the club slowly sort of didn't achieve what we should have achieved because I think that group of guys could have gone on with a, a couple more additions gone on and even improved on what we did. Yeah, how disappointing was that, you know, for the players and the club having worked so hard to get to third in, in, in the table? What do you mean the season after? After yes, yeah, well, yeah, as soon as we never qualify for Europe for political reasons more than anything, I think that um, we knew the likes of Ian, who was just desperate to fulfill this dream of playing at a big club. You know, we've got to be honest and say that uh, Crystal Palace weren't in that league of being in the top six. Um, but we always felt we had a potential of growing into that with what we had. But, you know, Ron Rose was talking about moving into the Crystal Palace Stadium and wow. building a massive stadium and all this. But that that gone by the by. Then, as soon as Ian went, I think that was the start of the decline, really. And I think it's very hard to, to build them boots. And, and then other players started leaving. And then it was just soul-destroying, to be honest, um, the season after. And we didn't deserve to go down, even with that. Um, we were still playing decent enough footballers. And, and the kids were coming through. They were starting to show promise. And, yeah, it, was, it wasn't a fitting end to a career that Palace I wanted. But, um, yeah, that was the only blip. Yeah. And that, even now, like I say, Having to go to Highbury the last game of the season, up and a couple of weeks before that, we thought we'd done okay. We probably thought we were all safe, but then Oldham did what they did, and the other teams sort of didn't do what they needed to do for us to survive. Really. You know, there was that uh, lap of honour, wasn't there, the after the last home game before it was. What were you <laughs> thinking? Were any of the players at that point thinking mm, this is a bit premature, lads? But I think you, we always did a lap of honour for to say thanks for your support at home anyway for the last game of the season. But I don't, I don't think we we thought we were going to go down that day. I think we thought we'd probably done yeah. enough. Uh, but you know we, that came back to bite us really. But I remember Chris Coleman actually saying probably at Christmas time looking at the fixtures because I think we were going through a little bit of a lonely time and we started to slide a little bit down the league. So. Uh, our running's not brilliant, then last game at high, don't fancy that. And that stuck in my mind as well, but uh, yeah, we, we didn't get, you know, we didn't have a chance. Uh, you know, we got a hammer in It was just a sad end, sad end. Yeah. There's so many talking to you about that, you know, these six, seven years, there are so many fine margins, mm. aren't there? That if <laughs> one little thing, it's like the butterfly effect, if one little thing goes a different way, yeah. Yeah. Life could be so different. But even so, as you said, Palace fans still look back at this period. You know, your period at the club has one of the, the most favourite and fondly remembered. Because, yes. you know, yeah. Palace did so well. And really, that 91 season is the pinnacle, really, for this team. And we did win something. You got your hands on trophy. The ZDS. So at least there was that. I mean, did that feel a little bit like a bit of you know, making up, I know it's not the FA Cup, but going back to Wembley and making up for the Cup final a little bit, getting to lift it. Just playing at Wembley is uh, something a footballer wants to do anyway. And it, the Cup was, the centre of data was just that opportunity to get in there. And 
playing against a good side, an Everton side. You know, it, it was a shame that Everton fans never turned up like Palace fans did and made, made it a spectacle. But uh, it should have been. But, uh, no, I'm, I'm proud as punch that I was able to, to lift a trophy in as a Palace coach, yeah. sure. Yeah. I, lo- I love the fact that it still has pride of place in our, um, tro- in our trophy cabinet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's the one big trophy. Um, I just want... Uh, one of Kevin and James, come on, sorry, one of you touched on uh, Jeff's England career. And in doing a bit of research on this, I've discovered two facts, two historical facts, Jeff. One, I know you know already, and that is in your nine games, you never lost playing for England. Mm. No. I'm sure not many players will have that, can have that kind of record. And the other one is your debut, which is away at Turkey. Is that right? In 91, a qualifier for the Euro. Yeah. Yeah. I believe was the only game that England won that third, the 1993rd kit, blue kit, that was obviously in the New Order uh, World Emotion video, which went down so well. That was the only time that England wore that in a competitive fixture, which was your debut. Not really? Yeah. Wow. <laughs> there you go. Two, two facts. Got... One better than the other. I'll be honest. Does that make it more valuable? <laughs> Because I've still got that shirt all signed up by all the players. That might be, it might be yeah. on eBay tomorrow. <laughs> that tagline. It definitely does. Yeah, I mean, you're, you know, your England career is having not lost is a, is a great start. But of course, you know where I'm going with this. Of because course. people, you know, that are, maybe weren't Palace fans or maybe weren't going to watch England regularly at the time will only remember it for that one moment. And I guess that must be frustrating considering it's a good record to have never lost in an England shirt. Yeah, but you've got to remember at the time, uh, Graham Taylor was bringing players in from not the top five, six clubs for the first time, really. And we knew that we're always under pressure. And so I think there was John Salako, Nigel Martin, Ian Wright, um, Andy Gray. Mark Wright pushing for England places. And it was, again, it was a special time. And playing for England, obviously, is something that every little footballer growing up as a kid dreams of uh, walking out Wembley with an England shirt on. And I'm just so privileged to say I've done it. And yes, my career was lighted with that, that horrendous chip against France. But it, it Realistically, it did take a little time after all the flipping stick I got off uh, David Baddiel and Frank Skinner and all this sort of thing. It's, it, it did hurt a little bit, but you've got to you've got to be brave enough and stand up. And it took a while, but then I, I dusted myself off and got on with it. But basically, um, Jeff, I, I think you should good. be. I've said this to both Baddiel and Skinner. You should be proud of yourself because you nearly scored the greatest goal ever. Yeah, in an English shirt. <laughs> <laughs> the, idea, the idea was brilliant. If that goal had gone in, that would yeah. be at the start of every single football. Day. It would have been. It would have been fantastic. You'd be, you'd be, you'd be Sir Jeff by now, without a doubt. <laughs> oh, but no. you should be. You, you had the ambition and the confidence to take it on. It just, it just there was a, a bit of a wind, a bit of a breeze. We know that, but yeah, yeah. It's really strong. Deal. <laughs> but. Going back, I mentioned that my start my career, David Platt was always one step yeah. ahead of me. And Platty, I played alongside that game. 
Platy obviously went on to have a career in Italy and all that sort of thing with what he did. He used to score goals from midfield. I fluffed my lines on that and then my gag of my career is I ended up in Wolverhampton. You know, it's, uh, it's you know, my, my career sort of plateaued out a little bit after that, should I say. But again, though, it comes back, well, it comes back to these fine margins, doesn't it? Yeah, football and that so many things can be determined by, by little things going one way or the other. Um, and then obviously when Palace went down in, in 93, obviously you left. I'd, yeah. I'd only been, uh, say, watching Palace. I'd, my first game was a year before that, 92. Um, I'm wondering, uh, James and Kevin, did you realise as fans at that point that Palace were going to lose players like Jeff? That, 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 that this was kind of almost the end of the road of that, of that team? Yeah, I, yeah. Ron knows more or less said that season when we finished third that he wasn't going to spend the money that was necessary for the club to push on. We know, we didn't have an idea when English football will be back in Europe properly. I'm, I'm still convinced that UEFA panicked and let Liverpool back in because they didn't want us in Europe. They wanted Liverpool in Europe, which shouldn't have happened. But and also once and, and no one. This is not true. I still resent Wrighty leaving, but of course we do. He went to a, a bigger club, as as Jeff said, and once one went, and they were starting to hit twenty six, twenty seven. Yeah, you could tell, you could sense that something special was was coming to an end, and you could sense it was going to take something really special to to replace it, to recreate it as well, because football was moving on as well, and it, the, the days when a club was full of young working class lads, a lot of them from your area. Was starting to change, and you know there was more money involved. So yeah, you did sense that something special was had come to an end, which is one of the reasons I think why that five or six years, certainly for people of my my age and James's ages, is one of the special. I mean, everything is it's wonderful. The last few seasons in the Premier League, but that was our first real. Take. You know, the, the team of the eighties was kind of always built on sand a little bit. So this was our first real taste mm. of supporting a club that was on the up, and yeah, you you felt that. It, you, had, you felt it had to keep going or it would stop. And once Ron knows that he wasn't going to finance it keeping going, it was always going to stop, basically. Was that I, the same? Sorry. Sam. Yeah, I mean, you know, I totally agree with Kev. It was, I think the important thing that Kev said that it was pre the Premier League almost. It was pre everything, the, the whole media saturation that we get now in football. And it felt like Crystal Palace was our club. Mm. You know, I mean, I'm a Northern lad like, like Jeff, but there's something about that South London club that really gets to you. And I think that team and that period pre-mass mass media was a really special moment. And I think when, you know, when we did get relegated, it was obvious that players were going to move. There was starting to be more money in the game. There was lots, lots more people start to watch it. And you just felt that we'd, we just weren't quite there. We're just a little bit behind, a little mm. bit behind. And it took us a long time to get back. Yeah. And I think you know, there's only... It's only over the last, as again, as Kev said, over the last sort of seven, eight years that we've almost got back to the time that we were when Jeff was there. You know, yeah. I think you know, and it has taken. Yeah, we, we've had great moments, great players, great situations within that. But <coughs> with there's there's been a gap from about '93 to about to about 2000 and whatever, whatever it is, to to where we are now. And I think that's yeah, it's um, it's interesting, it, but it was. It, it was sad to see that team go, but it was kind of inevitable it would do. Can, can I ask you a question as uh, supporters? I mean, we've, I've talked to a lot of guys from that time, from that era, of various different clubs, but I think 
that time was a, where players weren't sort of taken away from mm. the fans. I, I mean, mm. remember going into the players' bar, and there wasn't yeah. a players' bar at Crystal Palace. <laughs> it was like you, you just straight into like what you could call a bed, mm. and you don't like you'd have a good game because you're going to get told about <laughs> it if you know while you're having a, a couple of pints. So when I look back myself personally, I think you you, you build up a better bond. Um, with the club when you, you more or less face up to your supporters straight after the match and you explain certain things to them straight away and you, that, that bond really sort of yeah. grows you know more quickly than it does now I yeah. think I mean I, I feel like it is a business where a player is just turning out week in week out then you've got to be a special player um, to to get that sort of connection that we used to get that's why I think you know it was a special time back then I don't think that will ever return it is a big business now that uh, it's a great entertainment nothing's changed that side but that connection with the, the fans is, is definitely changed also we, we hardly ever saw you on the on the TV live yeah exactly we, exactly. we saw, no, we saw the highlights but true. we only saw you because and again it's an age thing because that was a time when we were going to every home and away game so we saw you playing these games we saw you playing we saw you yeah. playing and live there was a special bond between the fans. So there was, you know, so many young people today, I, I don't envy them because so much of their relationship with a team and with players is, is just through a TV camera. The, it, you know, the days yeah. are long gone when kids would queue up outside the ground with their programmes and the players would stop and, and, and chat to them. And, and again, everyone's nostalgic about their own time, but for us, for, for people of our generation, that, that felt like a special time. And, and as I say, not only just for Palace, but you felt that football was slipping away a little bit yeah, from, definitely. from ordinary people as well. So, And this is why we look back on it so much with rose-tinted glasses. And so much was bad about the game in those mm. days. The pitches, there's still, there was still violence around. There was still terrible on and off pitch races. And there was all sorts of stuff not to be proud of. But for the most part, it was a time when we were, yeah, we were young and our football team was doing really well. And our football team was made up of young working-class lads from similar backgrounds and that. That, yeah. that outside the Premier League and the Championship, that doesn't really happen anymore. I mean, even at a club like Crewe or a club like Rochdale, a lot of the players won't won't be from Crewe or Rochdale anymore. You know, they won't be young lads from the no. northwest, and it is harder to identify with. And, and yeah, the, the game is better now. There's no doubt about it. But there are elements of it that we that we still miss without a doubt. Yeah, agree. Yeah, I'd never thought about that actually. I've always thought about why were football players and fans closer in the 90s and well, Jeff's just given us our answer there you know they, they literally were physically yes. closer <laughs> yeah. and it makes a lot of sense I never thought about it and I, I sort of I sort of just missed that generation so I've never really quite had that connection to players and um, just briefly we're back to when you left Palace in 93 and these two are talking about it felt like the breakup of the band and they knew it was going to happen did, did the players feel the same way did you feel the same way about that yeah I, I think we seen Ian Wright go, and there was there was bigger clubs that were sort of looking about at players. I mean, the year before, um, I had an offer. I actually spoke to Kenny Darglish on on the phone probably two nights before the game, uh, the opening game of the season, where they were more or less matching what they paid for Alan Shearer to get me up to to Blackburn. So I spoke to Ron Nodes and Steve Copeland, and it was just a bizarre time where uh, Wrighty had obviously gone and 
I felt three million pounds for a fifty thousand pound player was probably a decent deal. <laughs> and and but I sat down with Steve Copeland and he said, I don't want you to go. I want you to stay here. You're my captain and you are the last, you know, person really that I want you to go at the moment. And that was it. That that deal fell through on the Monday. And and from that time other players seemed to go, Bright you went and unfortunately the, the the gap was too broad really to um, for the young youngsters to come through and and do what they did the year after. You know, they proved that they were good enough the season after, but just one season it was just too much, too soon for for the mix to happen where we, we kept the side of in a decent level really. So yeah, yeah, it was sad way all sort broke up. It was, uh, but still the atmosphere of the club has never changed for me. It's, uh, mm. We're always, like any supporter and as a player, you, you just look back at the good times. You, you remember the, the bad times you want to, you can try and churn them out somehow, but I, there's not many at all like Crystal Potts. I can't think of them at all, on and off of and I was going to ask you that because when you leave a club that you've had such a connection with, and then you come up against, you went to Wolves, obviously, and you must you sort of come up against Palace. I think you did you score in the '97 <laughs> semi at Molineux. Yeah. Um, obviously, I know it's you know I know like once you cross the white line, you're focused on the game and you're focused on your club. But it must be weird when you come up against a team that you have such a strong connection to. No, I, I, I was laughing because I, I played at Sellers Park for Wolves. And Harry Bassett was a manager of Crystal Palace. And, uh, I'd, I'd been out for a long, long time with a cruciate knee ligament. And I ended up scoring the winner. And I celebrated because I was just so glad to be back. <laughs> I remember celebrating and then thinking, <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and I got I got loads and loads of stick for that. But yeah, that, that's football. And, and when I look back, I always play whatever shirt I had on. I was giving that 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 club hundred percent. So uh, I'm, I'm hoping that uh, supporters are forgiving me for that. So, yeah, the, the semi-final you talk about. Cookie uh, Freeman scored two fantastic goals down at Sellers, and we were three-one down. And then I didn't score in the, the, that game. I, I set up probably the goal like um, give us a chance of getting back into yeah. the game. Palace went out uh, pretty good winners well don't worry I think the fans have forgiven you for celebrating that guy <laughs> <laughs> you're off the hook just about just about cheers and, thanks. Well, All right, Jeff. it's been such a pleasure talking to you thank you yeah, so much thanks, for sharing Jeff. your memories and, and your time yeah. just as we round off again if you can just remind fans anyone listening how they can support you with your current fundraising what websites to go to just at, and and what they can look out for I guess with your next you know, fundraising efforts, just give them a bit of an update. Well, bizarrely, um, the charity who I'm a patron of and supported since 2003, since I was diagnosed, Jill Leukemia, uh, we're putting on a day July the 4th, and it's called the GT Day, and we're, we're linking up with a, a bike company called Ribble and Swift to uh, do online cycle challenges. Uh, and this is one for you, Kev. <laughs> um, I'm cycling as we speak. You can't wait, see. Wait. You can only see the top of me. Yeah, <laughs> cycling all the way through this. I'll have you know. 
And uh, no, we're just uh, getting people together just to, to raise awareness and funds for the charity. Because we should have been, like you say earlier, we, we should have been doing the Tour de France um, in June, July. Um, but for obvious reasons, can't be doing that. So the charity, obviously, is we're, we're funding some fantastic work. And uh, with what's going on, there's obviously a big gap to be filled. So we endeavour to do as much as we can to keep supporting the doctors and nurses that deliver clinical trials in leukemia, in, in some blood cancers. And I've seen it and I've been on the front line. I've personally experienced it and I know what we're doing is making a big difference and it will continue to do that. So, um, yeah, if Crystal Palace fans want to get involved, just follow me on Twitter. I'm just going to be shouting about it for the next month. <laughs> And uh, I'll give them as many links as they want. They'll be sick. We'll make sure that we do the same on Twitter and retweet you and get that information out there. Um, Jeff Thomas, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Thank you, Jeff. See you, mate. That's brilliant. Enjoyed it. I could go on and on. I could bore you for a lot longer. Well, maybe once all the lockdown's done, we could do a part two in the studio all together. Yeah, definitely. Cheers, mate. When it comes to business travel in Orlando, it's never business as usual. Oh, sure, I could go on for days about all the incredible places to hold meetings or the Michelin dining or the innovative industries that'll make you feel right at home. But Dr. Michael Edwards of Ocean Insight said it best. Orlando is as much a business capital as an entertainment one. So dive in and see what's happening in Orlando, where the possibilities for business travel are unbelievably real. Learn more at Orlando for Business. Sports Social Podcast Network.